Americans in the Midwest are definitely on one side of the culture war. Well, what if their Democrats offer a rural New Deal? Would that make a difference? Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Liberals, progressives, and just about any traditional patriotic American who believes we really must be active citizens as our founders intended, determined to conserve our democracy and our republic. After a bit of reflection, all of us patriots realize we lost this country in 2016 to a candidate who expertly pretended pretended to care about people in the middle. Average Americans who work hard, often in the traditional rural middle of the country, who felt left behind, and not without reason. How did this happen? Is there anything we can do about that? Well, in 2016, our Democratic nominee was a perfect foil, ignoring this rural America, focusing instead on harvesting the easy money at big bucks fundraisers on the two elitist coasts. And the people in the middle were aware of that happening. Well, we're moving toward 2024 and beyond, and we can't let this trend continue. Our democracy is at stake, no exaggeration. Uh, The uh, people who voted for Trump really don't care about democracy. They have no use for it. Well, our guest today, Jessica Corbett, has a timely essay titled Progressive Groups Unveil Rural New Deal to Reverse Decades of Economic Decline. Whoa, what a concept, paying attention to them. Wow. Corbett notes, rebuilding and renewing supportive social and economic connections across rural and urban lines empowering rural people and communities, moving away from extractive relationships of the past, is the course we must chart together. Sounds quite reasonable. I wonder if it's, uh, if it's happening and if it would work. Jessica Corbett, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for having me on. Jessica Corbett's writing has been published by The Nation, In These Times, The Ithaca Voice, London's Peace News and Common Dreams. Her work in journalism primarily explores the intersection of politics, public health, and environmental policy. She also writes about human and civil rights, gender, and labor issues. As the report of the Progressive Democrats of America and the Rural Urban Bridges Initiative notes, that she refers to, quote, for too long we've neglected, dismissed, and underinvested in rural U.S. communities. I would argue that the intentional ignoring of the needs of rural America are a reason for Trump's appeal. Well, thank you again for being with us. And we, we've all heard of FDR's famous, rather successful New Deal, which effectively addressed so many problems of the Great Depression. And more recently, there was a lot of talk of a Green New Deal, what is meant, this is a little different from that, I guess. What is meant by rural New Deal? How did it come about? And what challenge does it seek to address that have been allowed to fester for so many decades? I know there's a lot in there. 
Go right ahead. Yeah. So Progressive Democrats of America and Rural Urban Bridge Initiative put out this 25-page report earlier this month, um, and it's calling for a rural New Deal. And basically, it's a policy platform that is designed to reinvest in the rural communities across this country that do often feel forgotten and have a lot of young people leaving as they come of age because there just are not a lot of opportunities for them. Um, And what particularly struck me about this proposal is not only is it nonpartisan in theory, any political affiliation could pick up some of these ideas, but also it really focuses on bottom-up solutions. So there are principles that guide the policy recommendations, and they really emphasize the importance of involving the people in each community in both the development and implementation. And I think when you see that kind of focus, you have policies that not only are more inclined to address the needs of the people who are actually affected, but they can last because the the folks who are implementing them and experiencing them want them to and will will fight for the continued investment. And there's a, a lot of questions in there. So before I get to uh, the policy uh, questions, who are these mm-hmm. uh, these two groups the uh, that put this together? Yeah, so the Progressive Democrats of America was founded in 2004, and their focus is really on transforming the Democratic Party so that the party and then the government um, that would uh, be made up of Democrats is focused on citizens and policies that serve the public interest instead of corporate elites. And then the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative was founded by a couple of folks with farming and rural development backgrounds and also legal backgrounds um, with the aim of really repairing the divide between the urban and rural communities in the United States. There's a, I think you really did see in 2016 that divide quite clearly in the election results. Um, You've got, you know, you had on one side Hillary Clinton calling people in rural America basket Mm -hmm. a a basket of deplorables. Mm -hmm. And you had Trump pretending, as you noted in the beginning, to to care about these people. And even though his policies very clearly didn't deliver on that, just getting some attention and having some hope that someone is finally maybe going to do something to improve your life after decades of um, of devastating experiences is, is understandable that um, even just the, the hope of a candidate actually doing something was enough to pull some people over to Trump in 2016. Yeah, that's that's for sure. A little bit of hope, and they they had been their economy had been uh, hollowed out pretty much. The uh, you know what had been there, uh, you know, a lot of the manufacturing jobs went overseas, and farming, mm-hmm. of course, was taken up by the big corporate uh, agribusiness, and uh, they, so they they got. Uh, kind of left behind, I, I can understand. And, and it amazes me how Democrats haven't talked to them and, and didn't didn't realize that. And, you know, a couple of questions. The first one is, you talk about reinvesting. Well, in this capitalist system, you reinvest if 
you have reason to believe that it's going to pay off, that it's going to, you know, that there'll be dividends to it that you, if you invest in it uh, and, you know, it doesn't pay off, then I could see people, so-called conservative people, uh, say, well, why buy this? What do we want, a nanny state? You know, how, why should we invest in these areas uh, if, you know, it's not going to pay off? And or, or is there a sense, do the reports indicate that, that it would pay off, that the people would have better jobs and that they could pay their taxes and, and participate more as, uh, you know, active uh, people in the economy? Yeah, I think that's very clear in the uh, wide range of policy recommendations that they make. So they call for funding rural schools, which will help the young people in these communities really expand their options career-wise. They talk about investing in rural healthcare. Well, healthier people can more effectively contribute to the economy. Um, they talk about expanding broadband. Well, it having reliable internet access really expands your options in terms of jobs and education. Um, and I think very specifically related to the fact that these rural communities are rural because they're land-based, you know, we, we all rely on food that is grown in often rural communities uh, in order to sustain ourselves. And so I think there's often disconnect between, you know, the food on your plate if you're a, a person living in the city and where that food came from. And I think making people across different types of communities, rural, suburban, and urban, understand how connected they are in terms of key necessities like food and, and capital are is, is key to to enabling this kind of investment because it really requires support from um, a wide range of people uh, in order to get politicians who would be willing to implement this kind of policy. Yeah, politicians who would be willing to implement this kind of policy. Now, I I don't know about you, but I haven't I haven't heard. I mean, the Democrats oftentimes uh, could have a little more spine, you know, and stand up for our progressive, traditional progressive values. I don't see them doing that uh, as much as I'd like, with a few exceptions like Bernie and a few others. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I don't know if they're, I mean, one would think, one might think that, you know, from the Midwest, there's a lot of states out there that, uh, you know, are, are essential for the uh, uh the electoral college that maybe they even Republicans might say, "Hey, let's pay attention to these people. Let's do something about it." But they seem to be relying pretty much on on the culture war, which uh, connects rather easily and uh, can obfuscate uh, real economic issues and still win the support of the uh, conservative social conservatives in the Midwest. Have Have you heard? I mean, there's. One can think of so many politicians from the Midwest that I haven't heard anything like uh, what what they're talking, you know, about helping the economy of this of these areas. Maybe I've missed it. What do we know about such things? Are there any uh, people standing up for that? 
I think you sometimes see that. I mean, look, I grew up in um, Illinois. I grew up in disgraced for speaker district. So uh, this is really personal for me. Um, I'm, I live out in Maine now and I live in the city in Maine, but um, had just started reading a book about the rural communities there. And it's interesting because there's a lot of differences, but there are also a lot of similarities in the, in the experiences of the people. And so I don't think that necessarily you see a lot of federal lawmakers focusing on the needs of the people in the rural Midwest, at least not from what I see in day-to-day politics. You know, I'm primarily focused on national and international politics, but Uh my family, my connections are, are in the rural suburban Midwest. Um, And it is disappointing, you know, that you kind of have this assumption in in presidential races that Illinois is going to go blue and Ohio and Indiana are probably going to go red. Yes. And but you you have Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and those were key states. I mean, those arguably decided 2016 and 2020. Yes. So. I would like to see that. I mean, I think, um, you know, you've got John Fetterman and for all the the screaming that (laughs) folks want to do about dress codes and things like that that don't really matter. uh, I think that he is an example of a federal lawmaker who perhaps would be receptive to this kind of policy. And I think that, you know, you have young people in these communities who are pushing for... Uh. A better future and we just saw you know that pressure work in terms of um encouraging biden to finally unveil a climate core inspired right. by fdr and hopefully you know in 2023 you won't have the same kind of segregation and other justice issues that you did yeah. with the original but i think that's an example of pressure from these communities working at the national level and you cite something important that uh, much as I, I love FDR, he had his faults. And uh, back in in the 1930s, when there was the original New Deal, yeah, there was segregation in, in housing uh, on the uh, public works projects. Uh, white people did not live with black people. It just, but it, you're right. It's well into the 21st century, and hopefully that's not happening huh, anymore. But uh, and we've made some progress, not as much as we yeah. like. But one of the important things that you mentioned is not top down but asking mm-hmm. people what they want, working with local people, you get a heck of a lot better projects that way. And I'd like to see that happen in foreign policy as well, instead of you know us coming mm-hmm. in and saying, this is what, you know, this is the government we're giving you, you know, and you gotta take right. it. <laughs> Ask the local people and have local people involved in this. And uh, I wonder if there are any uh, models of, uh, you know, working with local people and how this would be different from the rural New Deal. Uh, I wonder what we would expect to hear from uh, local people as to how they would design a uh, a federal program, say, you know, X amount of millions of dollars were available. What would they do with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's important. You know, the types of land use and the types of um, 
businesses that exist in one community don't necessarily exist in another. So a fishing community is not going to be the same as a farming community. Um, and I think that by engaging with community leaders and business leaders and labor leaders in these communities, you're able to kind of tailor those programs and those dollars to what the needs are. Um, and, you know, there are also like widespread benefits. Like the nice thing about this proposal is that there are also calls for federal policy, such as a jobs guarantee with a living wage that would benefit people across the board. And I think that's another way that you can generate support for a program or a policy platform like this is that, you demonstrate how everyone benefits by lifting up these communities that have been underinvested in for decades. Wow. That, yeah, it, it makes so much good sense. Well, I, I used to work in Concord in the, uh, I was in the state Senate and uh, I used to say, well, if it makes good common sense, it'll never happen in Concord. But every now mm -hmm. and then, again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about involving the middle, not giving up on middle Americans, something called a rural New Deal that a couple of progressive groups have put out. And our guest today is uh, uh, Jessica Corbett, who uh, uh, covers such uh, very interesting articles, I mean, uh, stories uh, in many different uh, medium. And I have heard people argue that our rural middle class can continue to be nearly ignored. I actually, I, this is true. I heard someone say, as compared to the coasts where the votes are, eh, no one lives there. Who cares? Comments, please. Well, I think that, um, you know, as we had noted in 2016 and 2020, that just proves that it's, it's simply not the case uh, when you have states like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania deciding elections, you know, it's not to say that they should only focus on those states either or their bases in those states. But um, I, I think that Trump and Biden under Trump, who's the current GOP frontrunner, despite his legal issues, um, and Biden, who's seeking re-election next year, are making that clear. They're both heading to Michigan, where the United Auto Workers are in strike. Biden's going there to stand with the auto workers, which most uh, historians of presidents can't think of a modern example right. um, in the last hundred years that was similar to that kind of action. And Trump is going to hold a rally with current and retired workers instead of going to the Republican debate. So it's clear that in some sense, they understand the impact of, these communities, it just kind of comes down to a matter of will their governance reflect that. And I think with Biden, you maybe see some of that, not nearly as much as a lot of these people would prefer. And with Trump, I, I don't think we saw that. Mm -hmm. um, but there's the Republicans are really effective at using fear yes. to drive people to the polls. And it, it is across a wide variety of issues. I watched a Trump campaign video today. And he fear-mongered about asylum seekers, calling them terrorists and people coming from prisons and the same asylums. Mm. And, he, you know, they, they fear-monger in order to get people to focus on something other than their day-to-day -day struggles, and they fear-monger to get folks to the polls. 
It is very effective. I don't know if there's anything more powerful in politics than fear, than manipulation of fear. And we've seen it happen so many times before. The most obvious example is Germany in the 1930s, and it happens now mm-hmm. quite a bit. And it gets, as you say, the attention off real things that, that actually affect people's lives, that it's harder for the government to do anything about that, whereas fear, ah, it's easy. You can just uh, manipulate that and, and laugh all the way to the next election. Now, liberals mm-hmm. and progressives, as I'm sure you know and, and have heard this too, have pretty much given up on rural Americans. What are the stereotypes that make people on the left believe they can't connect with rural Americans, that it's not even worth trying? And in what ways is this argument wrong? Yeah, well, I think part of it does come back to that concept of fear um, as as Clinton, as Hillary Clinton demonstrated in her speech um, when she made the basket of deplorables comment, she called people racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, and Islamophobic. And a lot of that is informed by whether it's in media or community leaders saying things to, you know, make make folks fear migrants moving to their communities, make folks afraid of LGBTQ plus people that they might not have encountered before, or if they have, if they don't have Muslim people in their communities, I, I will say as someone who grew up with uh, cornfields in every direction around my high school, it was not common to encounter people of color or people who were not Christian or people who identified as LGBTQ plus in my day to day life. And I saw some of that um, as I got a little older, but it was rare. And so I think when you weaponize fear of just unfamiliarity, mm-hmm. it can be very powerful. And when you couple that with the real economic hardship that people in rural communities are experiencing and you blame it on the the, the other, then it's very easy to say, oh, okay, I don't want this other anywhere near me or my family. And this candidate is on my side with that, and this candidate is not. So a lot of the people in the Midwest, in the rural areas, do have, they, they've been very, uh, the fear campaign has worked very effectively. And mm-hmm. so, but, but not, I'm thinking people, you know, progressives and people on the left t- tend to dismiss the Midwest and, and the people in the Midwest because of, of those uh, you know, stereotypes that are not untrue. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of truth to them. Sure. But, well, go ahead. You were about to say something. Yeah, I, well, I think part of it is truly just connecting and having conversations. Uh-huh. And it, it is very intimidating sometimes, especially in this era of gun violence. But mm-hmm. I, I think going really going door to door and going into these traditionally red communities. And we saw Bernie do that in 2016 and 2020 with his presidential campaigns. And also in 2022 going into the midterms for Democrats, he went into, I think it was eight States in October of 2022, many of them, Florida, Texas, Pennsylvania, Hmm. places where there are traditionally more red voters, more Republican voters, and talk to them about the issues 
in, they are experiencing and, you know, what kind of policies they want to see. And I think the a unifying economic message that does serve the working and middle class can really draw in folks who might have embraced some of these fear-based ideas. And it's a, an opportunity to have additional conversations and, and build relationships that might show them, oh, actually, you know, if you're a Christian and I'm a Muslim, we can, we can interact with each other or, oh, your relationship, you know, a husband and a husband, oh, maybe that's not so different than my marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think using a, a unifying economic message to create these opportunities for other relationships can be really powerful. Um, and people are a lot more complex in their beliefs yeah. than we tend to give them credit for when we're thinking about poll numbers. And, and you know, it, it's true that, uh, you know, it's easy to fear what you, what you don't know. But after mm-hmm. a while, when you realize, I mean, when, when most people, I do think across this country, most people know somebody who's gay, whether they know it or not. And once you get right. used to it, you know, it's, it's, it's no big deal. And economically, <coughs> oh, I got to cut that out. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the internet, before this mass communications, before TV, in the earlier part of the 20th century, the Midwest, the, the rural areas that we're talking about, was really a hotbed of what's called prairie populism. They recognized mm-hmm. that the federal government was really attached to the uh, corporate interests on the two coasts and, and not them. And they got uh, worked up about it and, and they made a big deal about it. And it was then focused on economic inequality, the, the power of the uh, city corporations and the banks over their ability to live and thrive doing agricultural work in small towns. People got fired up when, when uh, uh, their neighbors got kicked out of their houses because they couldn't afford the rent after the farm uh, failed. They uh, took uh, civil disobedient action and uh, really made a difference. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering if they recognized that uh, they were being, as William Jennings Bryan said, crucified on a cross of gold, and that the banks were not uh, enabling them to have uh, access to to money. It was complicated for sure, but uh, mm-hmm. it, it, they recognized that that it was that the issue was the economy, and that they were not being heard. And I wonder, what, what do you think? How come that? went away, and is there any possibility of connecting with that? Because these people are getting screwed, shall we say. I think there's a lot of opportunity for it. Um, I think it's a matter of if you're going to have the current political actors uh, recognize that. And I, I, so far, have not seen that, uh, certainly, with the folks currently in D.C. Um, I, I would hope that enough pressure and enough um, on the ground activism would perhaps force current elected officials to pay attention or force them out um, and lead to candidates who actually want to serve in this kind of prairie populist philosophy. Um, And 
I, I think that perhaps starts with activating folks in who are already living in these communities with this kind of policy platform and promoting organizing for this platform mm -hmm. that could lead to either existing officials adopting policies that are actually going to serve their communities or the candidates who the election of candidates who would actually deliver on it because right now we don't have i mean even our like national leadership for both the republican and democratic party largely come from the coasts yes it's true i mean we have a few people like uh sherrod brown of ohio who uh gosh mm -hmm. i hope he makes it again i think he's he's got the right idea in many ways and he connected with 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 this demographic that we're talking about and one demographic that you talked yes. about a little bit is young people and mm -hmm. I I don't live in the Midwest. I don't live in a rural area. But I can imagine uh, young people thinking, there's nothing for me here. I'm getting out of this town. I'm going to go to New York or L.A. or something like that. And, and yet it's young people who, you know, they're not intimidated by the, by the manipulation of fear. They don't, you know, they don't fear the other. They don't fear black people, gay people, LGBTQ plus people. But I, I wonder if... Are they going to say, hey, I'd like to stay in this rural area? I like this rural area. I wonder if, you know, because their voices make a big difference. And, and I don't know if there's any signs of that, but uh, maybe so. Your thoughts? I think there, yeah, I think there are. I mean, I, I, admittedly, that was my philosophy at 18. I was like, I'm up and out of here. I went to school in upstate New York, and I lived in New York City for a while, and then I just kept working my way east until I hit the ocean. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I do get back to visit my family a couple times a year, including right now. But I, I did leave because I didn't see a lot of opportunity for the type of political journalism that I knew I wanted to do. Yes. Um, and, you know, now 12 years later, I, I can understand the, the need for attention on these kind of communities. And that's part of why um, I was personally interested in the story because it's, uh, it's not theoretical for me. It's people I know and grew up around and family uh -huh. members who would be impacted by these kinds of policies. And with regard to current young folks, I mean, I've been blown away over the past decade, the organizing that we've seen specifically with regard to the climate emergency. Um, and just yesterday, uh, high schoolers at more than 50 high schools across the United States launched a Green New Deal for schools. And they're calling on their school districts to provide renewable energy-powered buildings, free, healthy, local, sustainable meals, support for finding well-paying union green careers, um, plans for responding to the increasingly extreme weather events that we're seeing, and also education about the climate emergency. And I think that's a great example of the kind of activism and organizing that we will hopefully increasingly see from young people. And that could actually have an impact similar to many of the policies in this rural new deal platform. There, there's definitely overlap there. The program calls for renewable, regenerative, renewable energy, the installation of solar and 
wind on existing land in rural communities. Right. It calls for education and training programs for people who are who have not gone to college um, or people who will be left behind career-wise as the country shifts from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Um, it calls for free tuition for community colleges. So I think there's a lot of interplay between what this platform is and what you're seeing in terms of demands from young people. And if we can build these kind of opportunities in their communities, perhaps they won't feel inclined to leave. And I can't help but think that, you know, if, if lo- you know, local young people recognize that there's, hey, there's a new wind farm or solar farm being built, and that creates a lot of jobs, that uh, keeps an area attractive and, and, and boosts the economy. And, you know, the way to build the economy is uh, by increasing demand. Uh, John Maynard Keynes right. certainly knew that. Uh, and the, the Republicans deny it, but it happens to be true. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Jessica Corbett, who's uh, written a very interesting piece about progressive groups unveiling a rural New Deal to reverse decades of economic decline. And uh, you may have already gone through a few of these, but in the article, you cite something called the 10 pillars of a rural New Deal. What are those? Yeah, so the 10 pillars are the bulk of the report. Um, They're the 10 broad categories for federal action that make up the full policy platform. And each of them includes like five to eight recommendations of specific policies. So the first one is to rebuild farm, forest, and food economies. The second is reward work and ensure livable wages. The third is to dismantle monopolies and empower and support local businesses. Whoa, what a concept. The fourth is, (laughs) yeah, um, investing in community and regional infrastructure. They also call for rebuilding small town centers, cultivating self-reliance and resilience, investing in rural health care, fully funding rural schools, making rural and small town housing affordable, Mm. and relocalizing rural and small town banks. And so that really, just going through that list really shows that it's not just about investing in, in farms. Um, it's, it's really across the board improving the lives of people in these communities. And, it, and as a result of that, um, really improving lives across the board, in the, like across the country, um, particularly for working and middle-class people. And it, it's interesting how really bipartisan this can be and there are mm-hmm. examples of it if some if they only stand up and show some as my people say chutzpah you know a little bit of courage mm-hmm. on this and i i was i'm in the state of new hampshire and many years ago when i was in the state senate there was an idea of taking what had been a private water company and transferring it to the municipality republicans mm-hmm. led the fight for that. And it did happen. It benefited the local people a heck of a lot more than a private for-profit uh, uh, water company. And I believe, I believe it's North Dakota, not exactly a liberal state, has sta- a state bank that can lend out money for, you know, projects uh, at, a, at a cheaper rate. And it, yep. it works. <laughs> uh, you know, why they don't do it? It just, 
I don't know. Are they afraid that they'll lose their corporate campaign money? I suppose that's probably it. I don't oh, know. absolutely. <laughs> I, I think that's absolutely the case. And, you know, you've got uh, deep pocketed donors with both the Republican and Democratic Party who mm-hmm. uh, would be upset by the prospect of having uh, monopolies broken up, of having higher tax rates for people making more money or with uh, generational wealth. And so I I absolutely think that there is an incentive for particularly politicians in both parties at the national level to serve the wealthy rather than the poor and mm folks who maybe don't consider themselves poor but are still sometimes struggling to get by. And people who are like toward the bottom of the what used to be a strong middle class, people don't remember there mm-hmm. used to be a strong, strong middle class. That's how old I am, that we had a strong middle class. <laughs> we really do. Yeah, and it, it doesn't really exist anymore. But I do think that um, the concept of it exists in that, at least in the um, with the folks I grew up around, you know, there's a lot of pride. Um, mm. And they don't necessarily want to consider this, themselves poor. Right. And that's something that um, I think that organizers um, and political figures need to think about in their messaging and in their conversations with people. Um, you know, there's there's still a lot of stigma with poverty. And you, you don't necessarily want to admit that maybe you're uh, you're struggling to get food on the table or pay your electricity bill. Right, right. And at the same time, you don't want to turn, you know, divide the already tenuous middle class between, uh, you know, one side, which has some degree of money and doesn't worry about putting food on the table and make the poorer people the other. You know, there's a, you you gotta, we're all, we're all in this together, urban and rural. That's one of the uh, uh, beautiful things about these reports from the Democrats of America and the Rural Urban Bridges Initiative, which, you know, wants to bridge the gap between the rural people and the urban people. It's a, it's a task, but hey, you know, it's, it's possible. We really do have a lot in common as much as, uh, you know, the Trumpists and others want to divide us. And, a lot of cities have have uh, homelessness crises, and you know it's been apparently it's getting a little better in San Francisco. And uh, there's lots of cities that have people living out on the streets, and mm-hmm. it's a national housing crisis. States and municipalities they can only do so much. They don't have the money. Only the federal government has the money to build affordable housing, really, I mean, in the long run. What does the report suggest is the proper role of the federal government in the housing crisis? Uh, Well, there's definitely a call to expand affordable housing, and part of it is definitely providing grants or loans to assist with that. Um, and to make sure that it's housing that is sustainable in the long term. So it's energy efficient. Um, there's a reliance on renewable energy. And it, it's, you know, housing that's built to last. I, I actually did some fact checking on a book about poverty and homelessness. And um, the focus was urban. It wasn't primarily based in New York City. But it is absolutely something that we see across the country. Uh-huh. In, in rural and in urban communities. Um, so 
one of the proposals in this report is to incentivize home builders um, in like to have community-based affordable housing groups, um, both in terms of rentals and in terms of ownership and, you know, giving them tax credits. So they actually do that uh, instead of just, you know, building a bunch of market rate Hmm. apartments or townhouses or even homes. Um, And I think without that kind of financial incentive, you're not just going to have enough people out of the kindness of their heart right. <laughs> uh, constructing these kinds of quality, affordable homes. Yeah. And again, if people have homes, you know, that's what the, the people who are out on the streets, they want, a, they just want a place to live, a place to live. And, right. you know, it, it leads to so many other problems and exacerbates any kind of mental health problems that are often the case. But if people have a place to live, and that's really, it's not asking for too much. It really isn't. I mean, that, that's, you know, the right may call that a nanny state, but it's in everybody's best interests. Well, actually, that, that leads to a question of, uh, you know, it's in the best interests of rural Americans. If I live in a city, eh, what do I care? Who, you know, what, what, what difference does uh, having you know a rural economy uh, stronger and having uh, 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 you know people able to survive in the, in the rural areas? What difference does it make to people who live uh, in the cities on the coasts? Well, some of the policies would definitely benefit people across the board. Like I said, as an example, federal jobs guarantee. Um, also regenerative farming, Mm. you got more nutritious food for people across the board. You also are sequestering carbon and climate action serves all of us Uh because it helps ensure a a more habitable planet. And so I think it's really about showing people in both communities, how interconnected we actually are um, and how the success or struggles of one directly impacts the the lives of others. Uh, you know, changes in wage guarantees, changes in policies about how much private equity can control, uh, changes in corporate consolidation and anti-force entrustment, th- those will affect people across the board, regardless of what industry you're working in or where you happen to live. And your report calls for reining in private equity's unbridled power. Say say more about that. What is that, and how should it be realistically addressed? So with regard to housing, for example, you do have massively powerful companies that buy up housing and force people out. And you can see that in cities, and you can see that locally. You know, they... Aren't necessarily based in the community. They ha- see an opportunity to buy a cheap building. They might revamp the building. They might knock it down and use the land. But suddenly, the people pre- who used to live in this area before just can't afford to stay. Um, you've also got various tax and legal policies that benefit. Mm private equity. And so by eliminating the carried interest tax loophole, for example, is one of the specific policy recommendations that they make, um, requiring joint liability for debt and mandating just greater transparency in how private equity firms operate are some of the specific recommendations. Now, 
it is very hard to imagine the current Congress would ever pass something like that. So I think that's definitely the type of thing that is only going to be possible through changes uh, in the current control of Congress. But um, I, I think there's still hope. You have folks like Elizabeth Warren, for example, who have pushed for sure. these kinds of changes. And one of my favorite bits of uh, graffiti from the 1968 uh, French student worker rebellion was, be realistic, demand the impossible. <laughs> and it gets yeah. done, you know, you push it. It may be impossible right now, but that's how change happens. You know, you, you push it a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, and eventually it does happen, uh, you know, once people hear the voice. And one of the things about, uh, you know, a protest, one of the things about the Midwest, it's huge. It is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, these states are really big. And there's a lot of land out there. And traditional rural Americans, uh, as we know, you know, have had their vocations land-based. They were, you know, yeah. agriculture, basically. It, it's 2023 now, almost 2024. Can such enterprises still play a central or at least important role in rural development? And if so, how? Yeah, I mean, uh, we still all need to eat. So I think that, especially with regard to agriculture, that's important. Um, and we all need clean water and clean air. And so maintaining these vast expanses of land is is incredibly important and you also need land for the kind of energy transition that we're trying to implement across this country you know you have to be able to install solar panels and wind um you know just down the street from my mom's house we, i was walking the dog the other day and i noticed an installation of solar panels that certainly wasn't there um, when i was younger and so i don't quite know when they installed it but i I think we are seeing those changes slowly happening and it's a matter of trying to make sure that um, it benefits people who are struggling. So maybe the farmer who has not quite gotten the yield that he's wanted to and has resisted right. uh, selling out to a, a corporate giant, you know, maybe if we work with him to have some kind of renewable energy installed on his land. So not only can he be self-reliant, but he can provide energy for members of his community. Suddenly there's an opportunity economically for him that wasn't there before. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's still important. And we just, we, we haven't really tried that. And rural communities have been always, as you say, deeply intertwined with urban markets, you know, you, you grow your food, mm -hmm. you take it into the market and you sell it. Uh, it's been that way forever. How can rural people take the lead in moving away from extractive relationships? And we talked, you talked about that uh, in the article, ex moving away from extractive relationships of the past. What can they do to, to, to do that? And w what are those relationships that need to change? Some of it is definitely policy focused. And then uh, some of it is, you know, trying to build opportunities like farmers markets and ways that um, farmers are more capable of getting their, their food to buyers. And I think part of it is, you know, maybe we don't need to ship 
all this food, you know, this way or that way across the country and trying to build partnerships with, um, with existing grocery stores. And I think like mandating some of that at a policy level would be interesting. Um, and also just, uh, an investment for, at the federal level in, in helping these food growers get their, get their food to the, the surrounding areas and, and perhaps even educational campaigns showing people where their food comes from. Ah. Um, I think that that would be incredibly powerful to really like building relationships um, across this rural urban divide. Uh, indeed. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, the, ur- the uh, rural New Deal, the idea for a rural New Deal, a bit different from FDR's, but uh, at least as important, possibly even more so. And it's, it's doable. You know, you, need, you just got to have the courage and uh, the uh, incentive to do it. Our guest today is Jessica Corbett, who's written about it, and she writes for a whole bunch of different good uh, publications. Um, and you quote, part, one of the groups that put together the, uh, the report, the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative, the director, Anthony... Flacavento, I hope I pronounced that right, he said, you quote him, he said, the extreme political divide in our country robs rural communities of the resources and opportunities they need while making it nearly impossible to address the biggest problems we face as a nation. What did he mean by all that? Well, I think in terms of the crises that we're facing, the ones that came to my mind immediately were the climate emergency and growing wealth inequality. Um, And I recalled when I was first reading through this Royal New Deal report, um, another report that I'd written about back in May from an organization called Fixer House. And they talked about how Congress lacks the incentive necessary to handle crucial tasks. And at the time, it was when we were going through the, um, the threat of a debt default uh, for the first time right. ever in the United States. And, um, you know, the, that report mentioned that while gerrymandering is, of course, a huge problem, a big issue is also polarization. So you've got rural voters increasingly voting for Republicans and, rural, and urban voters increasingly voting for Democrats. Um, and because these members of Congress are elected in uncompetitive districts, they are not afraid that suddenly a Democrat or Republican, whatever they are, is going to challenge them. What they're afraid of is a primary. And so they focus on their voting base and they refuse to work across the aisle. Mm. And when you're faced with that kind of situation, suddenly there's no focus on these broad sweeping policies like a rural new deal. You're just, feeding into the culture wars of whichever side you're on. And I, I think that part of it is, is definitely not only trying to create districts, congressional districts that yeah. are actually competitive, but also like creating um, the, the community, like creating connections within a community that might change the minds um, and make constituents pressure their members of Congress to actually work with people across the aisle on policies that benefit across the board. 
that that would be a good thing too. So that actually, as you say, the rural New Deal is in a unique position to break the some of the polarization because people, the the farmers have to work. You know, and not just the farmers, but the people in the middle in the Midwest need to work with the two coasts to have a market for their uh, for their products. And it's mm-hmm. it's so it is possible. And there's been concern in the past. You know, we've heard the phrase "picking winners" that we don't want the government picking winners. And Flacavento of the Rural Rural Urban Bridge Initiative uh, says that. Uh, some will argue that we can't afford the investments proposed in the Rural New Deal or that the federal government should not be picking winners. What's the correct response to that allegation, picking winners? I, yeah, he, so he wrote in Newsweek when the Rural New Deal report came out, he also published an op-ed. And I think he's absolutely right when he points out that, you know, we have a couple hundred billionaires uh, with a net worth collectively of $4.5 trillion. So the federal government has been picking winners yeah. for years and years, decades. And it's through our tax policy and other policies, but particularly through our tax policies. And I think that it's a matter of uh, recognizing that it's time that they actually started serving their full constituencies and using tax do- using tax dollars from the obscenely wealthy to invest in the lives and communities of, of the people across the country, whether they're in rural or urban communities. Yeah. Picking winners. How about winners? uh, The people of the United States, what a concept, right? (laughs) You know, the common good. That's what many of our founders were in in favor of. Uh, I wonder Mm what, two questions. How can, if people who are listening want to read more of the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative and the uh, the uh, Rural New Deal, what is there other websites you can point them to? Yes. So um, I write for, I'm a uh, senior editor and staff writer for commondreams.org. Uh-huh. Yes. And that's where this, um, my write-up of the report is. And uh, the report itself is hosted on Progressive Democrats of America's website, which is pdamerica.org. And then there's also additional resources um, just about the broader fight of healing this divide between rural and Mm. urban America um, at ruralurbanbridge.org. That's easy enough. So what can people do if they don't, you know, it's one thing for the people in the rural Midwest. What what can people in general do? I mean, the people listen to this show in, in various different cities. What can people do? Uh, I think part of it is definitely just beginning to have conversations with neighbors and other folks in their communities about, yeah. um, you know, how how can we, what, what do we need and what, uh, which of these policies would really change our lives? And then at that point, organizing, perhaps reaching out to these organizations um, who have some expertise with organizing um, and understanding how they can meet with and influence their elected officials. And if they're unhappy with their elected officials, you're talking amongst themselves and saying, okay, who's going to run for Uh Or, you know, even maybe local office or state office and eventually perhaps make their way toward Congress. Yes. And there's also another way, the good old fashioned write your member of Congress. 
It, yes. They actually do pay attention to that. And they figure, well, if they get one letter on this, there's probably, you know, 100 other people that feel the same way that didn't yep. put in the energy to do it. But it really does matter. And the opportunities are there. There are such opportunities for uh, healing, as you say, the divide between rural and urban, and to uh, make this, I mean, we talk about national security and put all these hundreds of billions of dollars into weapon systems that don't do anything mm-hmm. except ang- anger except people. Kill people. Kill people and yeah. anger people across the world and make us less nationally secure. Let's talk about building mm-hmm. real national security, and that in- has to include the rural people of America. And I think, I really believe, you know, if if there are economic opportunities in the in the rural areas, it's going to make things change, and it can, it can help... Uh, do that. So if people want to read more of your stuff, commondreams.org, is that it? Yep, that's correct. All right. Thank you so much. Very interesting stuff and very, very hopeful. I think it's, uh, if we keep on pushing, it, maybe it'll happen. Thank you so much, Jessica Corbett. Thank you for having me. I got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive, and a country boy can survive. Country folks can survive. I can plow a field all day long I can catch catfish from dusk till dawn Make our own whiskey and our own smoke too Ain't too many things these old boys can't do Good old tomatoes and homemade wine And country boy can survive Country folks can survive Because you can't starve us out And you can't make a run Those with them old boys raised on shotguns We say praise and we say ma'am If you ain't into that we If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.